Welcome to Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a Left Behind Reread podcast. I'm Aaron, your host, and this week our show's going to look less like evangelical propaganda and more like a weirdly spiritual spy thriller. Last time, Rayford Steele took his first steps toward discovering the truth, and Cameron Buck Williams made the long journey back to New York. I'm happy to report that these next chapters start picking up the pace plot-wise, as well as introduce our main woman protagonist, Ray's daughter, Chloe Steele. Also, content warning for suicide in chapters 9 and 10, because, of course... Chapter 8 kicks off with Buck discussing the information from Dirk Burton with his editor Steve Plank. Steve informs Buck that they already knew all that, and names Nikolai Carpathia, the new president of Romania, as the rising European star Dirk predicted. Carpathia was apparently a successful businessman before starting in politics, but his connections to Jonathan Stonegal, a wealthy American broker, make Buck wary. Steve brushes off Buck's concerns, stating that this disarmament advocate from a relatively unimportant country is almost certainly never going to come up again. In the meantime, Steve is pushing for Buck to continue focusing on the disappearances and the meetings of major religious groups and government organizations, something that is still not fully explained. Buck agrees, but emphasizes his desire to eventually interview Carpathia. Rayford is still at home, very sad. He recalls how this is the saddest he's ever been, including the times when his parents died. He reminisces about how he and Irene met and got married. Then, in another revealing detail, he talks about how, when his second child, Ray Jr., was born, his marriage was in a slump. He apparently, quote, didn't enjoy having a pregnant wife and spent a lot of time at work. Irene became depressed, so to help his wife with her struggles and simultaneously raise an eight-year-old, he became an alcoholic. Because of his absences, Irene accused him of affairs, which he would have liked to have been engaged in except he couldn't pull it off. When his son was finally born, Ray got his act together, but he still feels guilty about his behavior to this day. So while he thinks about how much he misses his family, Ray gets a call from Hattie. She apologizes for not calling him back, but Ray's trying to keep the phone line open for his daughter. When Hattie tries to talk to him, Ray shouts at her and tells her he needs to get off the phone right now. She's obviously very upset by the outburst and hangs up. Ray feels kind of bad about being mean and calls her back to apologize, but it's too late. Her line is already busy. Turns out, she's gone ahead and called Buck. Buck is trying to get ready at his apartment before a big meeting at 8, but Hattie wants someone to talk to. She tells Buck about how Ray shut her down when she was experiencing similar worries about her own family, and Buck is, frankly, unsympathetic. He thinks, quote, How did he get into this Lonely Hearts Club? Didn't she have any girlfriends to unload on? And he vows to take his home number off his business card in the future. <laughs> Y'all, we need to talk about Hattie. She is, in my opinion, the only sympathetic character in this book. She starts out being an object of lust for Ray, a man with power over her, and then once Ray experiences a tragedy, he totally hangs her out to dry. Meanwhile, the only reason Hattie knows who Buck is is because he was tearing apart an airplane phone, which is definitely illegal. And now, when she's trying to hit on him a little bit, he doesn't care at all. Spoiler alert, there's a reason Buck and Hattie don't get together, and it's way worse than you'd expect. I'm just saying, Hattie gets hosed in this novel. Pour one out for our girl. Buck shows up 45 minutes late to his meeting when Chapter 9 opens. Furthermore, the other big editors at the meeting are there, and they're pissed that Buck would be assigned to stories that are ostensibly in their wheelhouse. The international politics editor Juan Ortiz really lays into Steve Plank about how Buck is the wrong journalist to cover this big conference that has to do with international politics, 
but the religion editor Jimmy Borland appreciates having the extra coverage. Buck steps in and says that his main goal is not to cover their areas of expertise like a pool reporter, but instead wants to find a through line between these stories. He brings up the point that the Orthodox Jews who want to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem should be fighting with the ecumenical Jews who want to be part of this one-world religious order, but they aren't for some reason. Finance editor Barbara Donahue wisely understands that Buck, being the protagonist, is going to be involved no matter what, and tells everyone to get over it and start working with each other. The religion editor says he doesn't think there's any way to tie all these conferences together, but Buck promises that if he can't, then he won't write a story. Ray, meanwhile, is worrying about Chloe. She still hasn't returned home, and all he's doing is watching the news, which is showing that the roads are only just barely clear, with many vehicles unceremoniously pushed to the side. He notes that they've run out of space in junkyards to transport cars, so they just have to leave some destroyed vehicles where they lay. He finally gets around to calling the church his wife used to attend, a congregation that goes by the name New Hope Village. He gets the answering machine, which explains that due to the disappearances, they are only going to be having one service a week, on Sunday at 10am. The message also invites listeners to stop by the church to pick up a videotape prepared by the senior pastor, which might help explain what's going on. Ray remembers Irene speaking fondly of this senior pastor, and resolves to pick up a copy of this tape when he can. But his thoughts are cut off by the sound of a taxi rolling into the driveway. At long last, Chloe is home. She jumps into Ray's arms, asking how everyone is. All he can do is shake his head and cry. On Friday, Buck is able to get hold of someone who works with Dirk Burton, a supervisor at the London Exchange. However, as soon as Buck asks about his friend, the supervisor informs him that their conversation is being recorded. Buck is understandably shaken by this new wrinkle, and tells the man that now he's going to start recording his own tape. Buck informs the supervisor that he was Dirk's old friend from Princeton, and that he's been trying to get in touch with him all week. He's careful not to reveal the nature of the voicemail message Dirk left him, the one about Jonathan Stonigal, because this situation is getting stranger by the minute. The supervisor makes Buck swear that what he says should be considered off the record. After Buck agrees, he is told that Scotland Yard determined Dirk died by suicide that morning, by a bullet wound to the head. Buck can hardly believe it, and doesn't think that Dirk would have taken his own life. Buck rushes to ask Steve if he can catch a flight to London, as he has to investigate Dirk's death on his own. Steve is concerned that Buck might miss Carpathia's arrival, but Buck is determined to get to the bottom of this mystery. Now we get to a part of Ray's narrative that kinda bothers me. It is explained that Chloe is inconsolable, that she spends hours looking through her brother's belongings, trying to save anything that would remind her of the family she's lost. Then, in the same paragraph, they toss in these sentences. Quote, Rayford felt so bad for her. He had secretly hoped she would be of comfort to him. He knew she would be eventually. But for now, she needed time to face her own loss. Once she had cried herself out, she was ready to talk. And that's it! Chloe gets a measly three sentences to grieve, and then she's practically over it for the rest of the book. Ray gets, like, three entire chapters? The entirety of the last episode was about how bummed Ray was just moping and in his feelings. Chloe, who actually spent time with her mom and brother, doesn't get anything! Not to mention the fact that Ray was secretly hoping his 20-year-old daughter would be able to take care of his emotional needs. This is what I'm talking about when I say that this series doesn't respect its female characters. I totally understand that reading 2,000 words about Chloe being sad might not be narratively satisfying, but they only gave her one paragraph! And unfortunately, Chloe gets a lot worse treatment at the end of the story. Anyway, immediately after the three sentences of Chloe being sad, 
She informs Ray that the Californians believe space aliens have caused the disappearances, because, of course, everyone from California is the dumbest. Chloe doesn't fully buy it, but only because if intelligent beings did seize everyone, she theorizes that they would have tried to communicate with the survivors by now. Which just goes to show you what they really teach your kids at those liberal universities. Ray later goes on to say that people on the West Coast treat tabloids the same way Midwesterners treat the New York Times. And like, my guy, you haven't met nearly enough Midwesterners if you think we're all about hard logic and farm wisdom. Ray wonders if Chloe will ask what he thinks caused the disappearances. He reflects on her own departure from the faith while she was in high school. He always considered her a good kid, though at least a few times she had come home drunk after a party. Ray recalls the time he had a fatherly intervention after one night when she came home vomiting. He actually started crying because he was so worried about her, which had never happened when he fought with Irene. This moment of vulnerability was what brought her and Ray closer together, and he describes it as the point when Chloe and he became buddies. Even Irene noticed, saying that each child had a favorite parent. It certainly seems that Ray has a favorite child. When Chloe gives a cry of despair and asks, where are they? Ray tells her he thinks their family is in heaven. She doesn't believe it, but Ray is adamant. She says his theory is just as crazy as a Martian invasion. He asks what she believes happened, and she says she's honest enough to say she doesn't know. When Ray gets mad about that answer, she says he's chosen the most pleasant option, which is that their family is in a place where they are happy and safe. Ray gets even angrier and lectures her about how a few years ago, they would have said that the Soviets caused the disappearances, which I guess means the only logical step is to assume God did it now. I have no idea why he brings the USSR into this, but Chloe, who I think is totally justified at this point, says she doesn't want to listen to Ray's religious explanation. Ray, ignoring her, says that their own family is a good example of why the religious theory is correct. He says that of the four of them, the two people most likely to be taken into heaven are gone, leaving him and Chloe back on Earth. Chloe asks Ray if he thinks he's not a Christian, to which he responds, I think all the Christians are gone. These next few lines build an interesting dichotomy. Ray explains that if Christians are all gone, no one left on Earth is a true Christian. This line of thinking reveals the author's beliefs, that among believers, there are those who are righteous, and those who only pretend, or do not believe properly. Chloe brings up, in my opinion, a good critique, which is that a benevolent god who rescues only the people he cares about and refuses to listen to the prayers of the rest is not a particularly chill guy. They bicker some more, but in the end, Chloe comes to the conclusion that Ray is only interested in the rapture theory because it makes him feel better. Ray gives up and turns on the TV. From the news, Ray learns that Nikolai Carpathia will be in New York to hold a press conference and speak to the UN. He also learns that LaGuardia Airport is open, which means he might have to fly. He calls the flight center, which informs him he's scheduled to fly a 757, but his rating has expired, so he opts to take a trip to Atlanta on a 747 instead, with an extra seat reserved for Chloe. He also learns that Hattie Durham has been trying to get assigned to his flights. Ray is not super enthused by the prospect, but won't actively try to stop her from working with him. Ray gets off the phone and asks Chloe if she'll fly to Atlanta with him. She's surprised that he'd want to talk to her at all after the fight they just had. He's not mad, but states that he wishes Chloe would at least consider his theory. She tries to follow the through line of Ray's idea. If she does buy into the rapture, what are their next steps? If God has taken all the Christians, then doesn't that mean they've missed their shot? Ray doesn't know, 
but he wants to go to Irene's old church and find out. Back to back, we get Chloe saying, gee dad, I don't know, and oh brother, which could be lines straight out of Full House. She's skeptical about this rapture tape, and really doesn't want to go to church with Ray, but agrees to come because her dad cares so much. As the chapter closes, Ray promises himself that he won't fail her. At the top of chapter 10, Buck lets the reader know that both he and Dirk were friends with someone at Scotland Yard, which seems a little convenient, but I won't fault the authors for making up a character for the sake of moving the plot along. He plans to meet this friend in London, but packs a fake passport for the trip. It seems Dirk's paranoia is wearing off on Buck. When Buck calls this friend, a man by the name of Alan Tompkins, he doesn't want to reveal that they know each other, and introduces himself as a journalist trying to do a story about the UN Monetary Conference. He explains his main lead has gone silent, and he's worried something may have happened to him. Alan checks out his story, then requests Buck come see him at once. And again we switch back to Ray. This whole perspective switching thing isn't too disorienting as a reader, but for a podcast recap it's a real pain in the butt. It's now Saturday morning, and Ray has called the New Hope Village Church. A man answers, who identifies himself as Bruce Barnes, a former visitation pastor. To Ray's surprise, Bruce informs him that they've actually met before. Bruce remembers their whole family, in fact, and is unsurprised to hear that Irene and Ray Jr. are gone. Bruce tells Ray that he's the only person on staff who is left behind, but that he will continue to try to operate the church in the meantime. Specifically, he hopes to discuss this rapture videotape that the former pastor prepared for the congregation. Ray expresses interest, and Bruce says he'd be happy to give him a copy this afternoon. Meanwhile, in London, Buck meets up with Alan Tompkins at a pub. Alan is acting surreptitiously, refusing to drink his beer and constantly checking around corners. Alan tells Buck the first thing he should do is stay away from the situation, but Buck knows he's on the trail of something too important. Alan admits that Dirk was almost certainly killed because of his investigation into Todd Cothran and Stonicle's financial dealings. Both of them agree that they don't think it was a real suicide, because they knew Dirk too well to think he offed himself. And like, that's such a bad understanding of mental health, I just wanted to point it out, because it's terrible. One important fact Tompkins brings up is that Dirk was left-handed, and the gun was found in his right hand. Buck asks if Alan has spoken to higher-ups at Scotland Yard, and Alan responds that he hasn't done anything because he loves his family, except, weirdly, his older sister. Buck asks how he can just ignore this problem. Dirk says he should ignore it too. Buck says if he does nothing, he wouldn't be able to live with himself, and ominously, Dirk says, do something about this, and you won't be alive at all. Which is a decent line, all things considered. He also revealed that someone told him that Buck should be warned off this case, even though Alan didn't tell anyone Buck was coming. Apparently, what Buck describes as a, quote, heavy, showed up and threatened Alan and his family. Alan tried to deal with this problem by speaking to Todd Cothran directly. Remember, Todd Cothran is a rich guy who runs the London Exchange. Todd Cothran responded by asking Alan to say hi to the next person who shows up at his apartment at 10pm. Furthermore, Todd Cothran told Alan that Buck should stay out of it too, unless he wanted his dad and brother Jeff to have an accident. Lastly, Todd Cothran called Alan's boss at Scotland Yard, put him on speakerphone, and asked if it would be okay if he killed Alan right then and there. Alan's boss was perfectly fine with it, leaving Alan in kind of a rough spot. Todd Cothran expects Buck to take the next plane out of the country, so there's not a whole lot either of them can do. Buck is still not backing down, and assures Alan he'll find someone powerful enough to deal with Todd Cothran. 
At this point, the waitress announces that someone's left the light on inside their green sedan. Alan goes to check it, though Buck warns him to be cautious. Alan goes and turns it off without incident, and curses his forgetfulness when he returns to the pub. Buck informs him that he's going to take a flight to Germany before heading back to the States, as he doesn't want to chance any more time in the UK. He books tickets for a flight leaving in less than an hour, under the fake name George Oreskovich. While Buck's still on the phone, Alan tells him that he'll be in the car. Moments later, there's a fiery explosion outside. The pub door is blasted off its hinges. When Buck rushes to investigate, he finds the flaming remains of Alan's car, as well as his leg and torso. Buck tosses his real ID and passport into the fire, then runs through the pub and out the back window. He has a taxi taken back to his hotel, but the cops are at the entrance when they pull up. He decides to sacrifice his belongings and make straight for Heathrow, buying the cab driver's hat along the way. With this flimsy disguise, Buck escapes England and is on a flight to Frankfurt before these mysterious assassins can hunt him down. I'm very grateful for the plot finally picking up here at the end of chapter 10. Aside from the initial setup, I feel like the first act dragged, and is mostly front-loading us with backstory about two dudes who aren't terribly compelling. You can already sort of see where most of the story is going at this point, though. We've established that Ray used to be terrible, which is why his slide towards Christianity is going to be the end point of his character arc. Buck, meanwhile, is following these international businessmen which are seemingly disconnected from the plot, but the fact that they feature so centrally is a sure sign they'll be important before the end. I also appreciate the introduction of Chloe, since this story was hurting for a female lead, though I have zero expectations that any woman in this franchise will be treated well. I kind of hate the dynamic between Chloe and Ray, since she always refers to him as daddy, and Ray often treats her like she's a child. I suspect LaHaye and Jenkins could benefit from actually speaking with a college student, let alone someone bright enough to get into Stanford. Although, I have to admit, I kind of love how much they dunk on California for no reason. However, my favorite bet here in episode 4 is the invention of Alan Tompkins out of whole cloth for a single chapter, then immediately killing him after he's no longer useful. The best way to show how high the stakes are is to blow up a guy we have zero emotional investment in. The writing of this series is so strange. I know Tim LaHaye is not an author by trade, but Jerry B. Jenkins wrote literally dozens of books after this one. I wonder if the series quality will improve after this first novel. I can't complain though. That adage about a man with a gun walking through the door works just as well with a car bomb. In this week's Apocrypha, I'm going to do a little research into the concept of a one-world currency. I talked about how in the Left Behind universe, they've already made the transition to three forms of currency. The dollar in the Americas, the yen in Asia and Africa, and the mark, which I guess is a knockoff euro, in Europe. However, having a unified world currency is a topic of much debate among economists and conspiracy theorists. Let's take a look at the discussion surrounding this topic and see how likely it is to usher in the Antichrist. In initially researching this topic, many of the websites referenced a 1988 article from The Economist titled, Get Ready for a New World Currency. I dug it up, and firstly, gotta say, the cover is a flaming phoenix sitting on top of a stack of various bills, which definitely lends credibility to the conspiracy nuts. It also featured a story titled, Perestroika's First Test, so maybe not the most reliable predictor of world events, but hey, can't win them all. The article is dense with references to trade and market fluctuations from the late 80s that are way above my comprehension, 
but I think the gist of it is that the author is concerned about the effect our increasingly interconnected economies will have on each other. They use the phrase Phoenix Zone to describe a situation in the future in which all nations have adopted a single currency in order to allow markets to adjust naturally as the relative value of goods and services fluctuates. I don't know what any of that means, but this author seems pretty confident, so sure. They argue that this Phoenix currency would be controlled under a central world bank, similar to the International Monetary Fund. A country would no longer be able to print its own money, controlling inflation, and would instead need to take out loans with other countries to increase the flow of cash. The article also references something called the Special Drawing Right, or SDR, as a potential template for an international currency union. Most significant is the author's prediction that around the year 2018, the global Phoenix currency will see its rise. From our point of view in the back half of 2019, we know there's not much evidence to support a one-world currency at this time, since we're all a little preoccupied with the fun resurgence of fascism. However, plenty of people on the internet disagree, and claim that the introduction of a single currency is well underway. For instance, that special drawing right I just mentioned? A lot of folks are getting antsy about how it seems to be gaining prominence in certain sectors of the economy. According to the International Monetary Fund, the SDR is an international reserve asset, created in 1969 to supplement its member country's official reserves. So far, 204.2 billion SDR, or roughly 291 billion US dollars, have been allocated to its members, including 182.6 billion SDR allocated in 2009 in the wake of the global financial crisis. The value of the SDR is based on a basket of five currencies, the US dollar, the euro, the Chinese renminbi, the Japanese yen, and the British pound sterling. Currently, one SDR is equal to 1.38 US dollars. It seems innocuous enough to me, but let's check what the experts at Doug Casey's International Man have to say about it. Quote, Your neighbors don't have any in their wallets, and that isn't going to change. SDRs are dangerous. They give the government, in this case, a global government, more power. They're a bridge to a powerful global monetary authority, and eventually, a global currency. Many global elites, the types that gather in Davos, Bilderberg, etc., are huge fans of the SDR. International Man goes on to argue that a one-world currency would be terrible for the United States since it would hurt our ability to use the dollar to, I guess, pressure other countries into doing what we want? They talk about loaning out debt and keeping inflation low, which might be true, but I'm sort of skeptical of their financial literacy after all that stuff about globalists just now. They end the article with a prediction that a financial crisis will happen near the end of Trump's first term which I suppose will accelerate the push to create a single monetary unit. While I think this SDR theory is more persuasive than most, the scientists over at Signs of the Last Days Ministries have a different take. They believe that the European Union is more likely to be the cause of a currency unification, since the euro is already widely used throughout member nations. They're also concerned about cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin being used to usurp the current financial reserve system, and pave the way for one world government to seize control of the economy. It should be pointed out that this particular article was written in 2018, and Brexit is notably absent from any discussion of world unification. So based on the arc of history, I think we're at least a decade away from any significant move toward a single currency. A lot of stuff is happening in the world, and we're all trying to plan for a global market correction while dealing with widespread corruption and exploitation by the richest members of our society. Perhaps we are due for a financial catastrophe, 
but somehow, I don't think the EU and IMF are secretly planning world domination. That'll bring us to the end of our show. Please don't forget to give us a 5-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you're just as obsessed with this stuff as me, why don't you recommend the show to a friend and join our book club? Follow at RapturedPod on Twitter for news about new episodes. I recently ordered a copy of Left Behind Eternal Forces, and you can watch the intro to this critically panned video game at that account if that's your thing. And of course, follow me on Twitter at AaronSXL to satisfy my hunger for external validation. Hope you all have a great week. This has been Honey, I Just Got Raptured, a podcast of the Earth's Last Days. Thank you.